what would it have been like if we had eaten from the tree of life? And I've been, you know, the devil's advocate for most of this time. I, I don't know, this might sound surprising to you, Sophie, but I actually find feminism extremely tempting. He is here as the body of Christ. He is here to do what Christ did. Really, the whole trilogy is about obedience. It's almost a harrowing of hell in this world where there isn't really a hell. There are no new words under the sun. There are no new notes I have left to hum. There are no new rhymes yet to be sung. There are no new chords that strings haven't Hello, gentle listeners of Unreliable Narrators. This episode is part two of what will eventually be a three-part series on C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy. If you want to refresh your memory of the events covered in Out of the Silent Planet, we advise you to refer back to season one, episode 16, where we discuss the details of that book. But to give you guys just a quick review of what is important in terms of vocabulary for this science fiction trilogy, just keep in mind that when we refer to Maladil in C.S. Lewis's world, that is referring to God, and when he refers to Eldils, that is referring to angels, and the Oyarsa are the head or arc Eldils of the seven planets in C.S. Lewis's imaginative cosmology. Without any further ado, let's jump right into the episode. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Unreliable Narrators, where we discuss media, literature, and the arts and how they relate to Christ, the self, and the world. I'm Raymond Dokapil. And I'm Sophie Klomperens. Today, we're going to be discussing a piece that is not actually on the Mars Hill list, but I twisted Sophie's arm to make it happen because I'm a huge nerd about C.S. Lewis's science fiction uh, space trilogy. So I really wanted to just keep we on like going. We like to be thorough. We like to be thorough. When you start a trilogy, you got to finish it. Exactly. <laughs> got to do the whole thing. And so we're going to be doing the second installment of the space trilogy, and we'll go on to that hideous strength as well. Um, Paralandra was published, I believe, 1943, and it was one of Lewis's first fiction works. The Space Trilogy in particular was one of Lewis's first fiction works. And I think I've mentioned this before, but I read, my dad read these books, uh, told these books to me as a, as a bedtime story. And then when I was like a, like five or six, and then he actually read them to me when I was, I think 13 or 14, I later went on to do a dramatic interpretation on Paralandra. I don't know if you knew that, Sophie. Did, did I tell you? I didn't. Yes. So I did. I didn't know that. I did. I did Paralandra. And actually, what's funny is that there's a fight scene in Paralandra. And this was when I was in Colorado uh, and the altitude was higher and I wasn't drinking enough water. I got a bloody nose in the middle of the fight scene. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> so I cannot believe that happened. Yes, I didn't place very high that round. But um, anyway, that dramatic interpretation, for those of you who don't know, dramatic interpretation in speech and debate is where you're acting out a piece of literature without any props. Um, so you play all the characters. It's, it's very, it takes a little while to get used to um, if you see it for the first time. But it's anyway, it's a 10-minute cut. And I, I, I think that in retrospect, I should have 
seen the problems, foreseen the problems of adapting a piece like this and realized that it was really essentially impossible, especially for me to play, um, let's see, someone who represents Christ. Well, Ransom, I guess you could play Ransom. Ransom's okay. Then you have to play a demon-possessed man and a woman who is ostensibly without sin. So... <laughs> a sinless woman, a demon-possessed man, Ransom. This was not a cast of characters that is suitable for the speaker, let's say. Uh, Would require a very large range, I yes. have to say. It was a much larger range that I was capable of, but man's reach exceeds its grasp. So anyway. It's true. Anyway, let's talk about, well, I will. let's give it like a quick, maybe three-minute summary of Perilandra. So Out of the Silent Planet was set on Malacandra, which is Mars, right? The the war planet. And Perilandra means Venus in the old solar or C.S. Lewis's old solar language. And of course, he's basing this off of Greek mythology, which means Venus being the goddess of love. And so the story is about Ransom being sent on his interplanetary space voyage to Venus. And what he discovers on, v uh, on Venus or Paralandra is that unlike Malacandra, which was a very old world, Venus is an extremely young world. And he meets a, a, a woman on this planet who is essentially the first, the first, bless you, Thank you. <laughs> Who is the first woman of her race on this world? She, she he, he, he hasn't met the king yet, um, but the king and the queen on this planet are the very first of their kind, and they have essentially, they are essentially without sin. So this is in a Garden of Eden sort of a paradisal place, which is in stark contrast mm -hmm. to Malacandra, which, although it is unfallen technically it's an older world and evil has a presence there so what you have in malacandra is a world that is partially fallen and here in paralandra is a world that is totally unfallen and what we're going to see in uh, that hideous strength is Tholkandra, which is the most depraved of them all um mm -hmm. what ransom discovers here is that weston has come to Paralandra, and what happens is he actually gets possessed by a demon, and he uh, becomes the serpent figure, who is trying to tempt Eve to the Eve figure, who is called the Green Lady, to sin or disobey Maladil. Now, the forbidding, the thing that is forbidden on this planet is slightly different from that of the Genesis account. Um, and to understand that, we have to understand that in Paralandra is full of uh, floating islands. And everything there, all the land is floating. It's not fixed, except there are some lands that are fixed. And what we discover is that Maladil, for whatever reason, has forbidden the Green Lady and, her, and the king to sleep on the fixed land. And that's exactly what the enemy, Weston, now demon-possessed, is trying to convince her to do. And it ends up becoming a sort of battle between the angel and devil. So Ransom's trying to convince her to not do it, and Weston's trying to convince her to do it. It eventually ends in an actual battle, 
a physical battle between Ransom and Weston. And Ransom ends up defeating him, and, and, and Ransom essentially saves this world from, 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 from falling. And uh, he's rewarded also important. and sent home. And that's, well, that's the whole story, so. Yeah, I was just going to add, I think it's also important that Ransom recognizes himself as, in some weird way, the Christ figure here in this mm-hmm. context, because he has like a little, I don't know if you'd call it a conversation, but he realizes that what Melodil is telling him is that he's the representation of God in this world. He's the one. There's no one else who's, you know, going to come in and swoop and save them all. He was sent here for this particular purpose. So in a weird sort of way, he's kind of the one who has become incarnate on this world (laughs) for the purpose Mm of saving these people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like he's the representation of Christ here. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know, Sophie, you've told me you've had concerns about this book. I was like, at first, didn't want to hear it because it's like my favorite book of all time. So I just told you, you must be reading the French version. Can't be <laughs> reading the real version, obviously. You didn't or, tell me that. Or you would love it. <laughs> um, but please, uh, let's 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 delve into that. It's worth talking about. So what are some of... Um... I told you my level of concern. Yes. Now, I, <clears throat> there are a couple things. One of them is kind of more a formalist difficulty mm-hmm. and... You know, different people have different sorts of opinions on this. And this is not something that you would care about. So it doesn't really matter. Um, Maybe to some of our listeners, but it does matter to me. Um, So the first thing, and again, the least important thing, is that while I felt like Out of the Silent Planet was an accurate and pretty strong representation of science fiction, especially science fiction of the time, like... If this, that book were written now, everybody would think of it as a fantasy. Nobody would think of it as science fiction. But at the time that it was being written, that's pretty standard science fiction for the time. And he has little moments where he talks about like the way that gravity affects the ship or the fact that it's very warm in the ship because of you know the laws of physics, whatever. He talks about the way that the, the walls connect with the floor in order to like make the ship move. The ship is believable. And the space travel is believable. And there's the whole scene at the end of the novel where they're coming back to Earth and like, are they actually going to make it? Nobody really knows. Um, and there's lots of tension there, which is very science fiction. He's working, th- he's working in a cosmic mythology through the genre mm-hmm. of science fiction. And that's the reason that I think the genre itself is important. Um, he's not just making up a mythology. The mythology is within the context of the modern views on science science mm-hmm. matters here yeah, yeah um yeah. because we're we subsist in the real world in this second book i just did not see that at all <laughs> i didn't see the same science fiction elements um and my main complaint is that he like the ship question mark <laughs> that he takes to get to perilandra is what's like a the, casket what's, thing what, what's the ship question mark oh well, it's like a casket so like when he leaves Perilandra, they have kind of a little funeral and they like have to close his eyes and like put flowers in it and everything. And symbolically, obviously, it's really good and super rich, mm-hmm. but it's just 
There's no way. That's not a spaceship. Okay, <laughs> That's well, never going to make it back to Earth. Well, the thing, so the point of that is that, like, Ransom is actually, instead of being transported or as a kidnapper by scientists who have made a man-made vessel, he's actually being transported directly by the Oyarsa of, was it Oyarsa of Malacandra or Paralandra? One of them is acting as the propellant. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's Malacandra. Malacandra, yeah. Which he's carrying. Yeah, that. yeah. So there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, like we live in a world where there are spirits. In this world, there are spirits, and the Oyarsa, you know, can do whatever they want. Um, and obviously, it's symbolo- symbolo- symbologically, it's a good thing <laughs> to have it be a casket, so you can have like death metaphors and all that and so like that's great but mm-hmm. he's taking the story outside the context i think of science fiction which was the original idea like the original idea was it was a subtle blend of the two um and he just kind of abandoned that almost completely in right. the second novel which again to you it doesn't sound like is really a, a problem at all um my difficulty with it is just the fact that I think that it being science fiction and it being rooted in the real world helps his case. Mm-hmm. It makes it easier to take the mythology seriously. Um, and like how at the end of Out of the Silent Planet, C.S. Lewis comes in as himself and is like, so this is how I met Dr. Ransom. And here's how he told me the whole story. And he suggested mm-hmm. that we write it as a science fiction novel. So there's literally within the universe a reason for it to be sci-fi. Um, and like, so in the first book, there's lots of making fun of HG Wells, right? (laughs) Where they they come across a race and, and Ransom's like, Oh, this isn't at all what it's like in the HG Wells novels. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, because like, of course it's not. And we're kind of making fun of things that are maybe strange or unrealistic in Wells. Um, but I think that HG Wells would do the same thing (laughs) to CS Lewis about this novel. Um, because there's so many things that I think are unbelievable and unrealistic that wouldn't be a problem if we were presenting it as fantasy. But ostensibly, it's not fantasy. It's rooted in a scientific world. Well, and I just I, didn't get that feeling here. Well, I think that, I guess that really the the science fiction label has been more of a hindrance than a help it seems to be more of like an excuse to get people to open the book, at least from Lewis's perspective, because what he <laughs> what he really wanted to write was fantasy. And he makes that abundantly clear by the third book because he literally calls the book a modern fairy tale for grownups so that people would not go in expecting a science fiction story, right? And I think that yeah. he's deliberately trying to... Um, challenge the boundaries of, of science fiction. But there's also a, a, a major point, I think, that he's making with the means by which Ransom is transported. Because the means by which Ransom is transported from Earth to Venus or travels, the means by which he travels through space is actually really important for Lewis. And that goes back to the very first quote, right, which was a key quote in Out of the Silent Planet. Space was the wrong name. The ancients knew better when they simply called it the heavens. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that Lewis was saying is that even though, so the fact that 
the vessel which Ransom traveled to Malacandra in the first movie was uh, movie first book was so scientifically <laughs> accurate was actually problematic because it is neglecting the absolute brilliance and glory of space and it's missing the soul of space so to speak and so there must be a way for you to travel through space in a way that is that 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 captures the spiritual element and that in fact travel through space should be travels through the heavens and it should be a spiritual journey and not a journey inside some kind of man-made vessel and this is the thing that in all science fiction we've always had this assumption that travels through space needs to be through a man-made vessel you can't travel through space the way you would like ride on a dragon you know what i mean you know it's like flight right the idea of flight there's something about riding on a dragon like in how to train your dragon that makes flight the same identical with like riding a horse. You know what I mean? I, I don't know exactly how to put this into words, but it's like it's a relational, non-technological means of travel, which gives it spiritual mm-hmm. significance. Um, and I guess the casket, the picture, at worst, I would say it's probably just not very aesthetic. But I think the point, like aesthetically pleasing, but I think the the, the point of the casket is first that he is traveling in a spiritual context. Um, and I guess probably a more aesthetic way of looking at it is the way the little prince travels through space, right? I think that's really appro- appropriate because he does not, he also does not travel via a spaceship. He travels through a flock of birds on a kite or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that it is not a vessel, a, a man-made scientific vessel is really, I think, the point of it. Um, sure. So, the and, one... but here's the thing is that the, 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 um, his scientific descriptions, like when he talks about Eldils, um, he does concede to the sort of the scientific expectations when he talks about because Lewis visits Ransom's house at the beginning of the story, and he sees an Eldel, and he talks about how I, it was no color that I had known. It had an inorganic voice, a bloodless voice. And he has a bunch of footnotes where he, like, quotes these medieval astrologers or astronomers, Natviclius, blah, 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 and these long passages in, in Latin um, where he's mm-hmm. trying to explain the phenomenon of the Eldilla. And really, I think it's kind of silly. So... Um, I think that his attempt to push the his fantasy world into a scientific mold actually weakens it rather than strengthens it. Um, sure. I mean, maybe that might be true. I guess the one response that I have to that is I, I get the point now and I hadn't thought before about the idea of it being important that the journey through the heavens is spiritual rather than like cold, hard, scientific. That makes sense to me. But given the fact that we started this story and we're saying this is the real world, right? We're saying this is really Earth and this is really what's going on on Venus and this is really what's going on on Mars. We just can't see it and don't know because we haven't been there. Um, We're rooted in the real world, which means that human bodies have the limitation that human bodies have, right? 
human bodies can't just go be in space. Um, and I think you could even make a comparison with that. Like if you want to portray space as the heavens and as better and more beautiful than like empty, cold, hard rocks. Right. That's the goal. That's what we're that's what we're doing here. Um, if you want to see the world that way, you want to see space that way, then it reminds me a little bit of the great divorce where when he goes to heaven, he has trouble with the surroundings, right? Like the grass is too hard and it's spiky and the waterfall would like crush him if it fell on him because his body isn't ready for the environment of heaven. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that C.S. Lewis could have portrayed space that way too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I, the difficulty that I have is like this casket flying through space Sure, again, like, as a symbol, that's great. That's perfect. It does what it needs to do. But he has a human body, and, like, the casket is not protecting mm -hmm. him from the fact that space is a vacuum and isn't, like, that he can't survive in those that environment. And so I don't, I don't disagree that there needs to be something spiritual about it or that maybe he does need to shift from what he's doing in the first book and that maybe it doesn't need to be a man-made vessel. It needs to be something like more spiritual travel but theoretically we're in the real world and i actually think it cheapens the fact that the human body exists in the real world and that there's mm -hmm. something special there's something important about the things that the human body can do and can't do the fact that the human body can't breathe in certain conditions there's nothing wrong with that there's nothing wrong with the human body the world isn't just spiritual and then the physical is less important mm -hmm. um God made the physical world the way that it is. And so there's something really beautiful about science. There's something really beautiful about facts and biological limitations and the fact that you can make a spaceship that actually can travel through space and actually can support the human body with all of its needs and limitations. That's really beautiful. And also like inherently in some sense, spiritual, I think. <laughs> Because it's only a human that could make that happen. So, you know, it's it, it's fine. I get what he's doing. And I, he's not a science fiction author. And I recognize that. And he's actually steering away from that. But I think he's... I think that this book would be stronger if he were more of a science fiction writer. Well, he's definitely very ambitious in this book. In fact, if you really understand what he's trying to do, Paralander is probably the most ambitious book in the Space Trilogy. I mean, that hideous strength is the most epic, like, large scale, let's say. But Paralander's the most ambitious, I think. Mm -hmm. And so in some that. areas, I think that he, he succeeds. And then in some areas, as you're gonna, we're going to talk about later, it's, it's debatable whether he succeeds. Um, yeah. But let's, let's go a little bit more into a closer analysis of what happens. So Ransom... He, 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 he lands on Paralandra. A couple of descriptions of the environment. He, it's described as being um, very vibrant, very full of life. It's very fertile. I mean, that kind of makes sense being this is the heaven or the sphere of Venus. And um, it's very green. The sky is described as being gold. And the atmosphere is so thick that you actually can't even see the stars in here. But it's, but it's a very enclosed environment, and it's not described as being an unpleasant place. Um, 
it's 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 a very pleasurable place and uh ransom ransom meets the first inhabitant here who is called just referred to throughout most of the book as the green lady and he discovers that she is quote unquote without sin well not quote unquote she is without sin and there's actually a lot of difficulties in understanding her because they find they can't really have conversations with each other or mutual understanding because ransom's way of understanding the world is always based on an assumption that sin exists and the green lady is just so innocent at this point that she just doesn't have any concept of that and she uses the term young right it's mm-hmm. not in in the old in, in in the old world they had a concept of sin they called it bent right um there's no concept of bentness in the green lady's mind it's either mm-hmm. youngness or oldness so um she can directly speak with maladil and when she talks with Maladil, she says, Maladil is making me older. Um, she has some conversations about with Ransom about, like, is it possible for a person to be unhappy? Is it possible for someone to expect one thing and actually get another thing and be unhappy about that? That's where the basis of this idea of sin comes up, actually. Um, because the green lady was expecting to meet the king and then she actually meets ransom and there was a slight look of like surprise or disappointment on her face um ransom says well weren't you upset weren't you upset of the fact that you got me instead of the king and she's like whoa (laughs) you're blowing my mind man (laughs) it's like (laughs) i'm upset about this and so and then she says, like, you're making me older than I can bear. And she has to go and sit down for a while. And so Ransom's a little <laughs> bit like, what have I said? You know? Um, so anyway, they're, they're, they're uh, traveling on, uh, they, they go exploring around on the planet a little bit. Wait, if and I at this point, yeah, yeah. One thing there, um, she uses a metaphor that is used through the whole rest of the book, which is the idea of, going into the forest and looking for a particular kind of fruit Mm -hmm. that you would like to eat. And then you find a different fruit. Um, And the idea is that the second fruit, the one you weren't looking for is the one that Malaldil wants for you. Um, And so like, that's the only way that she can kind of start to understand what Ransom is talking about, where she's like, okay, I can see how like I might look for one fruit and then I might be kind of surprised when I got a different one. But she's also like, but, you know, the other fruit is better because even if that's not what I originally wanted, um, I, you know, accept and understand that that's Mm -hmm. what was intended for me and that it's better because I trust the fact that that's what Melilda wanted for me. So that that metaphor gets used through the whole rest of the story. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what happens, there's the plot twist, Ransom discovers that there are fixed lands he actually likes to uh to to he's actually happy to find that there are fixed lands because he says that's what it's like on my world and the green lady is shocked to be like what do you mean it's like that on your world well everywhere on the world is fixed it's, it's fixed on on my planet and she's like shocked and then she reveals how is that possible because melodil has forbidden us to ever sleep on the fixed lands and so 
what Ransom and the Green Lady discover is that something may, that is forbidden in one world may not necessarily be forbidden in the other. And in our world, it was this choice between eating from the fruit from the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In this case, it's never sleeping on the fixed land is the thing that is forbidden. And that also becomes a, a question that's coming up again throughout the rest of the book is like, why would Maladil forbid this? Because it seems it seems arbitrary. It doesn't seem like there's any specific reason for it. And so uh, Weston comes and Ransom and Weston spend a night on the fixed land and the green lady decides, you know, she's like, it's sunset. I got to get out of here. So she, she books it. And so Ransom meets Weston and be like, okay, what kind of, um, what kind of devil trees are you up to here now? Oh, and by the way, Rans uh, Weston has come in the same spaceship that he built in the first one. So he came by himself. So Ransom's like, I don't know what Weston is doing here. I'm going to try to figure out his motivations. He starts talking with Weston and he realizes that all of Weston's previous philosophies about posterity for the human race has completely disappeared. Which he thought, oh, okay, this maybe this is a good thing. Maybe he's developing. He's like, so Weston says, I don't really care about the future of the human race anymore and evolution and all of that. And then he starts getting really weird. Weston starts saying, yeah. saying, well, because what I found was the life force, the power of the life force in me, and starts talking about some some strange, weird spirituality where he says, you know, uh, uh, at the front of the world at the front is the is the yang let's say god the good and then ejecting us from behind is evil which is the devil and really they're flip sides of the same force so when i worship the devil i'm really worshiping an aspect of god um and so it's kind of this dualist philosophy which ransom says okay this is this is getting really strange and ransom starts uh, uh debating him and weston gets increasingly and increasingly irate. And this is the scene that I actually acted out. It was probably horrible to watch. Um, <laughs> but this is the, the scene that I that I dramatized in my dramatic interp. Uh, so Weston says, Idiot. His voice was almost a howl, and he had risen to his feet. Idiot, he repeated. Can you understand nothing? Will you always try to press everything back into the miserable framework of your old jargon about self and self-sacrifice? That is the old accursed dualism in another form. There is no possible distinction in concrete thought between me and the universe. Insofar as I am the conductor of the central forward pressure of the universe, I am it. Do you see, you timid, scruple-mongering fool? I am the universe. I, Weston, am your god and your devil. I call that force into me completely." And at that moment, Weston is thrown into these convulsions and is turned into a state of, uh, like, unconsciousness. And it's actually, he seemed to be given some kind of superhuman strength at this point because Ransom tries to feed him a, a bottle of beer that's from Weston's pack. And Weston opens up uh, his mouth and bites off the head of the, the mouth of the beer can. A little bit of blood's trickling from his mouth, so... He's like, what's happening? But he does this while he's unconscious. And yeah. then, so Ransom's like, I don't know what's happening here. And so he leaves for a little while. And eventually they meet. He meets Weston and the Green Lady on the floating islands. And they're having a conversation. But he sees that Weston is no longer Weston anymore. 
And what's happened is he's actually become possessed by the devil somehow. And so he's kind of like this breathing corpse, zombie corpse, who's being remote controlled by whoever, some demonic power. And he's trying to convince the green lady to sleep on the fixed land. And then at that point is when Ransom discovers why he was sent to Paralandra. I think this might be a good point, a good place for you to talk about some of the things uh, that some of the, the, the concerns, as, we, as you said, the concerns <laughs> that you have about, about this story. Okay, I think the maybe the best way to put it. Um, so, Out of the Silent Planet was focused on Malacandra, which is a planet that sort of represents, or that story is kind of about masculinity and about the masculine. Um, mm -hmm. Because, like, the creatures are, you know, they enjoy, like, violent sports. They like to hunt this particular... And it's, like, it's, it's positive about this um, warrior aspect of being a man or being masculine. Um, and every single different race on that planet has some sort of aspect or draws out some kind of uh, aspect of masculinity. And then this book pretty clearly is the counterpart. This book is pretty clearly about, in some sense, femininity, presumably in the same way that Out of the Silent Planet was about masculinity. Um, so the couple of difficulties that I have, given that fact, um, the first one is that there's this whole, so at the point where, as we're talking, we've gotten to this point in the plot, um, Ransom and Weston do the little angel and devil thing on the shoulder where Weston's trying to convince her that she needs to, you know, break the commandment and dwell in the fixed land. And Ransom's saying, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. And there's this sense that whichever, whoever wins between Weston and Ransom is going to be the winner <laughs> of is going to determine the outcome of this world. There's actually never a suggestion that she, the green lady might just make the correct choice. Um, if ransom weren't there, she would fall. And if Weston weren't there, she wouldn't fall, but she's completely passive, right? She's being acted upon by these outside agents. Um, and she's, she more or less doesn't actually have her own agency to direct the outcome of the story. There's never even like a question of that happening. Um, and when Weston is talking to her more or less what he's doing to try and like convince her to break the commandment is he's, uh, in, you know, I don't know. I don't know if indoctrinating is the right word, but he's giving her a little university lecture, university course on feminism um, and a couple of the things that he tells her, uh, the fact that they come from the devil makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, for example, he tells her at one point that, um, women are made for more than just having children. The idea being that maybe we're suggesting that the inverse is true, which is that women are like their primary purpose is to have children. Um, and the reason... I, we talked about that a little bit before and you were like, well, but you know, a lot of what he says is like three quarters true. And it's the little bit of the lie. That's the problem. Um, but also CS Lewis isn't super subtle. Like he tends to be pretty heavy handed in what he thinks is true and what he thinks is false. And 
most of the time when Weston says something that's a lie, the green lady will like turn to Ransom and be like, what do you think? Do you think that's true? And he'll be like, well, I don't know. It's kind of true. So like, (laughs) I don't know what I can say. I don't want to lie. But in that specific moment, like when Weston says that specific thing about women, like their primary purpose is not to have children. There is no exchange like that. Like Ransom does not weigh in. Ransom doesn't go, hmm, well, that's kind of true. So uh, oh, well, 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 actually, he 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 doesn't really speak back at all. I don't know if you were looking at the same text that 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 uh, right now. What well, what 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 specific scene are you referring to? Are you referring to the scene where he's he's um like Weston is teaching the Green Lady to look into a mirror, or some other place? Um, I wish I had the quote, and well, maybe I here, can look it up here. here, here here's it. the quote. Here's the quote. I think you might be talking about. So, Green the Green Lady, the Weston is talking to to the Green Lady, the Unman at least as he's called now is talking to the Green Lady, and here's the text. It. Unman is referred to it. It was not talking about the fixed land or even Maladil. It appeared to be telling, with extreme beauty and pathos, a number of stories, and at first Ransom could not perceive any link between them. They were all about women, but women who had apparently lived at different periods of the world's histories, the heroines of stories of these stories, all suffered some great deal. They had all been oppressed by fathers, cast off by husbands, deserted by lovers. Their children had risen up against them, and society had driven them out. But the stories all ended, in a sense, happily, sometimes with honors and praises to a heroine still living, more often with tardy acknowledgement and unavailing tears after her death. Each of these women had stood forth alone and braved a terrible risk for her child, her lover, her people. Each had been misunderstood, reviled, and persecuted, but each had also been magnificently vindicated by the event." What emerged from these stories was rather an image than an idea, the picture of a tall, slender form, unbowed though the world's weight rested upon its shoulders, stepping forth fearless and friendless into the dark, to do for others what others forbade it to do, yet needed to be done. And all the time, as a sort of background to these goddess shapes, the speaker was building up a picture of the other sex. No word was directly spoken on the subject, but one felt them as a huge, dim multitude of creatures pitifully childish and complacently arrogant, timid, meticulous, unoriginating, sluggish, and ox-like, rooted to the earth, almost in their indolence, perhaps to try nothing, to risk nothing, and capable of being raised into full life only by the unsanct and rebellious virtue of their females. It was very well done. Ransom, who had very little pride of the sex, found himself for a few moments all but believing it. And that's where the scene ends. He doesn't actually speak back. That's like... Um, so I found the quote. It's a different scene. Um, it's a pretty short little bit, so I'll read it. Um, this, so this, the context is Weston's, like, talking to her and trying to convince her. Now, while she was on her own... Now or never, the noble thing must be achieved. And with that, now or never, he began to play on a fear which the lady apparently shared with the women of Earth. The fear that life might be wasted, some great opportunity let slip. How if I were as a tree that could have borne gourds and yet bore none, she said. Ransom tried to convince her that children were fruit enough. But the unman asked whether this elaborate division of the human race into two sexes could possibly be meant for no, per- no other purpose than offspring. 
a matter which might have been more simply provided for as it was in many of the plants. And then uh, it goes on. He's like, men are trying to keep you down, all that sort of thing. Um, so I think this is the specific section that I was referring to. Um, mm -hmm. And Ransom does weigh in, right? She's like, what if I could have done something else and it would have been great? And he's like, children are good enough. Children are all you need, which definitely seems like coming down on the side of Weston's totally wrong, which is... Well, see, it's a weak point, and he keeps on losing his debates. So it's like, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I think, the, the whole problem here. And, and, and so, I mean, when you go back to this, 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 I want to go back to this, this line here. The ransom who had little pride of the sex found himself for a few minutes, moments, all but believing it. Um, I, I don't know, this might sound surprising to you, Sophie, but I actually find feminism extremely tempting. Um, because when I, <laughs> when I hear the feminists have this picture, uh, paint this picture of the other sex as arrogant, timid, meticulous, unoriginating, sluggish, and ox-like, um, the amount of evidence that supports this picture of the male sex is so overwhelming that it's impossible to argue <laughs> with. So look, it's like, yeah. So whenever the feminists say, well, like men really are real, real sons of bitches. Well, I guess that's a little bit, take it a bit far, but <laughs> they, it's like, well, yeah, I guess, you know, it's like, what am I going to say? The men have problems. Uh, so mm -hmm. The criticisms that are leveled against men from the feminist side of things I, are, are not necessarily things that I can argue with. And that's exactly what he's saying here. Ransom thought, despite, this is later, Ransom thought, despite many rallies on her part and many setbacks suffered by the enemy, that it was very slowly and yet perceptibly increasing. What the matter was, of course, cruelly complicated. What the unmanned said was always very nearly true. Certainly, it must be part of the divine plan that this creature should mature, should become more and more a creature of free choice, should become, in a sense, more distinct from God and from her husband, and in order thereby to be at one with them in a richer fashion. In fact, he had seen this very process going on from the moment at which he met her, and had unconsciously assisted it. This present temptation, if conquered, would itself be the next and greatest step in the same direction, an obedience freer, more reasoned, more conscious than any she had known before was being put in her power. But for that very reason, the, fa the fatal false step which, once taken, would thrust her down into the terrible slavery of appetite and hate and economics and government, which her race knows so well, could be made to sound so like the true one. So to go back to this idea of um, out of the silent planet being about masculinity and, and Paralandra being about femininity, the, the, the sin of Weston, let's say, in Malacandra is essentially the same. It's actually this hyper-masculinity. It's actually a problem with masculinity um, because mm -hmm. Weston's whole idea is that you need to stamp down the weak and dominate other worlds and live forever and survival of the fittest and, and strength and, and all of that sort of thing. Um, and that's 
that's rebuked. That's considered just as problematic as this, right? Um, and so you you say that it's about masculinity and it's a, this is about femininity. But I think that a better way of thinking about it is that it's the setting. The setting is masculinity. The atmosphere of Malacandra is masculinity. The atmosphere of Paralandra is about femininity. But I don't think that's it's right to say that that's what it's about. I think that if we're using the word about, we're talking about the theme. And I think the theme here is obedience. And really, it's the whole trilogy is about obedience. Are you going to obey mm-hmm. Maladil or not? And the problem of what does it actually mean to be truly obedient to Maladil's way? Especially, especially, and this is the problem of the fixed land, especially when his commands seem so arbitrary. And it seems that actually some kind of rebellion is necessary for growth. And that actually happens to be the case in our world most of the time. Um, in fact, the idea, at least in this world, on this, in, in our fallen world, the idea that you should just blindly obey all of authority would actually be a sin, really, essentially, it would be wrong to for you mm-hmm. to not question it. And so I think that what's going on here is that C.S. Lewis, and this is why this book is so ambitious, C.S. Lewis is mm-hmm. trying to wrestling with the question of what would have happened if we had not, if we had not disobeyed God and eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because there's an idea, and this is actually in some Christian theology, which uh, argues this, of the idea of the fortunate fall. And the fortunate fall is, well, actually, it might have been a good thing that we ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, because through that, um, good came out of it. And that's exactly what the unman says. It's actually a good thing because, you know, that good came out of the fact that we fell. And so if we had obeyed God, let's say, and not eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that isn't really what God wanted us to do. He wanted us to rebel a little so that we could grow and become more free. And given the fact that we don't really have a concept of what it would have been like if we had not disobeyed, we don't have that story. That story doesn't exist in our consciousness. It's like tree of life or tree of knowledge of good and evil. What would it have been like if we had eaten from the tree of life? And the answer is we have no idea. We don't know what would have happened or what plans God, Maladil, had for us if we had eaten from the tree of life. So there's this constant reference to this unknownness, to this unknownness, that there is this world of unfallenness that is completely inaccessible to us, that it may have included independence, independence in the case, and this specifically for, you know, for women, for, for, Eve, for the Eve figure, it may have included that, but we don't ever get to experience, see, or taste that because we only know it in this context, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that it's it's quite appropriate that when God came in the garden to Adam and Eve and says, you know, like, who told you that you were naked, right? Who told you that you were vulnerable? 
what what is what happens? Adam blames Eve, and Eve blames the serpent, and so Adam blames Eve. That's that's the patriarchy, if you like, and Eve mm-hmm. blames the serpent. That's feminism, and you, both of those are true. You know, it's like the mm-hmm. the accusations they made were true. The point is that they're not actually un. They're not understanding it in the context of the fact that I disobeyed. And then everyone gets a punishment that is appropriate to, you know, what their, uh, what, what their, what their sin was, you know? Right. So I accuse you of this. Well then, okay, you're, I, you know, Adam accuses Eve. Okay. Well, Eve, you're going to get this punishment, you know? Um, uh, uh, and then the serpent, Eve blames the serpent and it's like, well, okay, now you're going to get this punishment because of that. No one actually points a finger at Adam, but he gets a punishment anyway. So I think that's pretty fair. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I want to, on that note, I want to talk about, and I think it's important to talk about, um, the nature of Ransom as, like, the coming in as the Christ figure in this story. Um... And the way in which he, you know, solves the problem, (laughs) the way in which he handles the the devil figure. I'm going to preface that by saying maybe a better way to explain, like, my overarching difficulty just with, like, the concept of the story really, I think, mostly lies in the fact that the Green Lady, our Eve figure, there is... what I said earlier, the fact that there's no sense that she is going to make the correct choice unaffected, right? Like, that she is more or less doomed to fail. (laughs) Ransom, you know, kind of the whole time thinks, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I'm winning, but he always thinks of it in terms of, like, maybe I'm convincing her, Um, not maybe she's realizing or she's, like, going to choose to obey. And ostensibly, she's a free creature and she could make a choice, but there's no sense that she's going to make the correct choice. She's just going to, you know, she's naive and she's going to be passively affected until she makes the wrong choice, unless he gets in the way and he goes and just, like, kills the devil. Um, and that's the one other thing I'll say that I have kind of a overarching problem with the book. Um, the fact that the solution is just go fight the devil. <laughs> um, like, the solution is an act of violence um, because the obstacle that would corrupt the green lady needs to be removed and it needs to be removed by physical violence, which we already know from the first book is like a masculine trait. I think what you're saying about the setting being masculinity and the setting being femininity is really helpful. And that does help me a little bit to understand and distinguish why the books are written the way that they are. But I still think it's problematic that in this book where the setting is femininity we have one female character who doesn't make a single choice <laughs> the whole time. Um, and if she were to be allowed to make a choice, it would be a catastrophic choice. And Adam's, like, not even there. <laughs> um, she's, you know, it's all hanging on her, except that she can't be trusted to have everything hanging on her, so we have to go kill the devil. Um, so that being said, that, I think, maybe being a structural problem, or I would label that as a structural problem. I do think it's really effective in terms of character development to have Ransom be sent to this world, not understand why, and then come to the realization that he is here as the body of Christ. He is here to do 
what Christ did. Right. Because and I think, honestly, I don't know if you got this, but I definitely got chills at that moment when Ransom is talking with God or the voice in the book, it says. And mm-hmm. it says, it is not for nothing that you were named Ransom. Yeah, yeah. No, I just got chills right now when you quoted that. Like, it's that that's really well done. Um, and the fact that he, like, that it's a, it's almost a harrowing of hell in this world where there isn't really a hell, <laughs> um, because there isn't a need for one yet, uh, that there is sacrifice involved in the conquest of evil and like that there has to be sort of an exorcism of this world, but that exorcism has to be through sacrifice and that ransom is like going to offer himself as that sacrifice. I think that's great. I am a huge fan of that element specifically. It's the combination of that with the portrayal of the green lady that I'm not such a big fan of. But if I think, so if I think about this just as a story about ransom, if I'm like, this whole trilogy is really just about Ransom and just about the choices that he makes, then, you know, I might complain. I might be like, there are almost no female characters <laughs> and they don't, like, do anything that affects the plot. And that would be, like, a formal complaint uh, against the stories. But I would understand it not as C.S. Lewis has a low opinion of, like, the ability of women to make rational decisions that are like good decisions. I would think of it as C.S. Lewis overlooked maybe this fact because he was writing a story about ransom. Yeah. Okay. No, I think, okay, that's, that's fair enough. And I think also, you know, this, these are some of Lewis's Lewis is actually quite famous for having extremely strong female characters in almost all of his fiction. So I agree. Um, I agree. That's actually, I was surprised. I hadn't read this before, like a couple weeks ago, and I was surprised reading it because of the fact that I'm used to C.S. Lewis's very complex uh, female characters who do affect the plot in really important human ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And so I guess, I guess structurally and aesthetically, um, you know, this, I mean, this is this is one of Lewis's very first works of fiction. So, I mean, you know, maybe that that might account for why it's a little bit more unso- unsophisticated in that regard. And a lot of a lot of what the point of this story is is kind of like a theoretical framework or construction of his vision for Christianity and what it means for him. So maybe you know um, a more nuanced portrait of. Of, of the green lady just kind of got neglected a little bit. Um, so, but, you know, there's also this, this idea in, in Lord of the Rings too. And I mean, to push back a little bit because Frodo is actually a pretty passive figure, although he's technically supposed to be the hero of the story. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that at the end at, in return of the King, the fact that Frodo actually decides to take the ring for himself um, Yeah and doesn't do anything heroic in the end is actually extremely disappointing. In fact, it's so disappointing that they actually changed it in the movie because in the movie, Frodo takes the ring for himself and then Smeagol is fighting with Frodo and then uh, Frodo and then Frodo eventually starts fighting with Smeagol a little bit and they both fall over the cliff face and then Smeagol falls into 
the lava and Frodo's just hanging by the edge. So it's sort of yeah. ambiguous, you know, a little bit. That's Although, not what that's not what happened in the book. What happened in the book is that Frodo takes the ring for himself, Smeagol bites off his finger, and there's no battle. Smeagol is just dancing on the edge of Mount Doom and he takes a false step and he falls in. So literally Frodo did nothing heroic. And that's actually part of the point of the Christian myth. It's not that makes it different from a story like Beowulf, that the central character actually does not succeed by any kind of heroic effort. Yes, I. the one thing I'll say about that is that Frodo does make two choices that affect the plot, right? Choice number one is he says, I'll go, I'll take the ring to Mordor. Um, and that's a decision he's making because no one's telling him. They're not like, okay, Frodo, you gotta go. And he's like, oh, dang it. Like, he recognizes in the council that he has to go that there's not going to be another solution that's going to work. Um, so, like, that's a choice, and that affects, that drives the entire rest of the plot. Even if he's passive, he's still deciding to move forward because he has this mission that he has to do. And taking the ring, that's a bad decision, but at least it's a decision, right? He's making a choice that's affecting the plot. I would argue that that's super different from the character of the Green Lady here, because she doesn't make any choices. <laughs> she doesn't decide to do a single thing the whole time. Um... And the plot, like, nothing happens in the story because she chooses to do or not to do anything. Right, right. Yeah, okay. So I think that the the, the, the only thing I want to say about that, and um, again, well, like, let's let's grant that that the Green Lady is 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 more passive, at least, than than maybe she should have been. But okay, but let's say also maybe some of this passivity maybe there's some there's some there's some point to this and i think that part of the point is first of all we have to emphasize the idea that the green lady is described as being young right and that yeah. doesn't mean that cs lewis thinks that she should remain young forever but that that's what she is right now mm -hmm. at this point and what she is eventually going to grow into being is, in some sense, is actually some kind of real, genuine independence, right? From, 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 you know, subservience to the king, let's say. Yeah. And what I think part of the point of Lewis's story is that this the green lady actually gets that in some future story that's not your story, that's not our story, because we did not make that choice, mm -hmm. right? And I think this is a really big theme in the story. There are constant references to this esos esoteric second story that we know nothing about. And this is what makes right. the book so ambitious, I think. So I have a bunch of quotes of which I labeled under references to the esoteric. Um, and I'm going to go through a couple of them. So first of all, okay. there's, a, there's a conversation between Ransom and the Green Lady um, about Maladil taking the form of a man on Thulcandra, which is the incarnation of Christ. And Ransom is talking about the old world of, of Mars, how they were furry, otter-like creatures, right? But the Green Lady says... 
Well, actually, after Maladil took the form of a man, all the rational Hanau, all the rational creatures after the incarnation will only take on human form, the form of man, Hmm. which is a really, it's a mind-blowing idea. It's like a really crazy, like, imaginative Christian mythology that he's building up here. Oh, my lady, he said, why do you say that such creatures linger only in the ancient worlds? Are you so young, she answered. Since our beloved became a man, how should reason in any world take on another form? Do you not understand? That is all over. Times do not go backward. And do you know, said Ransom with some hesitation, and do you know why he came thus into my world? The context, the subtext of that question is, do you understand sin, right? All through this part of the conversation, he found it difficult to look higher than her feet so that her answer was merely a voice in the air above him. Yes, because of her greatness, glory, and whatnot. Yes, said the voice, I know the reason. But it is not the reason you know. There was one, there was more than one reason. And there is one I know and cannot tell to you. And there is another that you know and cannot tell to me. I love the way C.S. Lewis teases you with these sort of things. And it's like, do you, yeah. Lewis, is he, is he, do you referring to something that we should know about? <laughs> and I don't, like, I don't think he is. And I don't think he himself knows what he's referring to. But his point is that there's a bigger world out here that, that God had, that God had for, for us, for unfallen man that we don't yeah. know about. And that... Yeah, there's 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 more going on to the incarnation than simply what we know about. And he says this in like Narnia, right? Aslan says no one is told any story but their own. Um, and so here are some other really interesting references. So Ransom is in when Ransom fights the unman, he they have this kind of almost like harrowing of hell, actually, like you said, harrowing of hell imagery because they descend into this underground cave. And that's where they fight in this underground cave. Which I should say mm-hmm. is also an Aeneid reference, I think, because descent down into cave has very similar imagery as Aeneas descending into the underworld in book six of the Aeneid. Yeah, yeah. So very, very cool there. Um, but while Ran- after Ransom, Ransom defeats the unman, and he, he defeats him by bludgeoning his face with a rock, and then he discovers later that uh, the unman has somehow bit his heel and crushed it. And of course, there's reference there that, you know, he shall crush his head and you shall crush his heel. So like, yeah. very cool imagery there. So while Ransom is trying to escape from the caves, he comes across a throne room. And this is this is not something you would notice, like, I mean, like, uh, pay much attention to because it's only mentioned in passing. It seemed to him also, though this may have been delirium, that he came through a vast cathedral space, which was more like the work of art than that of nature, with two great thrones at one end and chairs on either hand too large for human occupants. If the things were real, he never found any explanation of them. And that's it. He just yep. mentions that, and then he keeps on going. It's like, well, what's that about? Again, but like, you would think that that shouldn't be important to the plot, but it, it is. The point is, like, there was a plan. There's a plan for this. There's a reason we don't know. Yeah. And here's another thing that that, that he talks about that uh, the for, uh, he comes across a bird 
uh, or a creature that has a bird's voice. Um, the bird's voice is to a flute, so this was a cello, low and ripe and tender, full-bellied, rich and golden brown, passionate too, but not with the passions of men. Not with the passions of men. What is What sort of passion is that? Because right. what other passion is except for the passion of men? And it's all these kind of like little clues, things that are mentioned in passing that appear not to service the plot at all, which actually do. Mm-hmm. And that is, there's another story here, right? Yeah. And he does this better than Milton does, I think. Because mm-hmm. Milton, Milton tried to do the same thing of like create the picture of unfallen paradise. And it became, it was very stiff, right? And Satan's much more kind interesting. Of flat. It's kind of flat. Yes. But Lewis tries to circumvent this. He tries to do the same thing without falling into the trap that Milton did. And he does this by teasing referring referring to it but not really giving you the whole picture yeah um that actually reminds me of uh gk chesterton's orthodoxy uh which was his non-fiction book on the central tenets of christianity i think it's sort of easily paired with mere christianity i think more people have read mere christianity but i think i might like orthodoxy better um and the ending, the last passage of Orthodoxy, I think, pairs pretty well with C.S. Lewis's point there about there being another story that we don't know about. Um, and I'm just going to read it here. <clears throat> we are perhaps permitted tragedy as a sort of merciful comedy, because the frantic energy of divine things would knock us down like a drunken farce. We can take our own tears more lightly than we could take the tremendous levities of the angels. So we sit, perhaps, in a starry chamber of silence, while the laughter of the heavens is too loud for us to hear. Joy, which was the small publicity of the pagan, is the gigantic secret of the Christian. And as I close this chaotic volume, I open again the strange small book from which all Christianity came, and I am again haunted by a kind of confirmation. The tremendous figure which fills the Gospels towers in this respect, as in every other, above all the thinkers who ever thought themselves tall— His pathos was natural, almost casual. The Stoics, ancient and modern, were proud of concealing their tears. He never concealed his tears. He showed them plainly on his open face at any daily sight, such as the far sight of his native city. Yet he concealed something. Solemn supermen and imperial diplomatists are proud of restraining their anger. He never restrained his anger. He flung furniture down the front steps of the temple and asked men how they they expected to escape the damnation of hell. Yet he restrained something. I say it with reverence. There was in that shattering personality a thread that must be called shyness. There was something that he hid from all men when he went up a mountain to pray. There was something that he covered constantly by abrupt silence or impetuous isolation. There was some one thing that was too great for God to show us when he walked upon our earth. And I have sometimes fancied that it was his mirth. Beautiful. Beautiful passage. Um... And I think maybe in germane to that quote is this this closing quote here. And there's a, there's a ceremony when Ransom finally meets the king and the queen together. And he's having a conversation with the king. The king mentions this. As Melodil himself draws near, says the king, the evil things in your world shall show themselves stripped of disguise so that the plagues and horrors shall cover your lands and seas. 
but in the end all shall be cleansed, even the memory of your black Oyarsa blotted out, and your world shall be fair and sweet and reunited to the field of Arbal, and its true name shall be heard again. But can it be, friend, that no rumor of all this is heard in Thalcandra? Do your people think that the Dark Lord will hold his prey forever? Most of them, said Ransom, have ceased to think of such things at all. Some of us still have the knowledge, but I did not at once see that what you were talking of, because what you call the beginning we are accustomed to call the last things. I do not call it the beginning, said Tor the king, but it is, it is but the wiping out of a false start in order that the world may then begin. As when a man lies down to sleep, if he finds a twisted root under his shoulder, he will change his place, and after that his real sleep begins. Or as a man setting foot on an island may take a false step. He steadies himself after his journey, and after that his journey begins. And this, and is the whole story of my race no more than this, said Ransom, the implied answer being yes. The whole story of our race is nothing but a tripping over on a route. Which I think is a, is a great idea. And, and maybe there is some concerns I think maybe you might say about, about construing everything as Lewis did, as a battle between good and evil, between enemy-occupied territory, because that might tempt us to think about things in Manichaean terms, whereas there's a positive force that is good and a negative force, which is evil, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think that, well, probably the best way to circumvent that particular heresy is to say that this is fantasy, right? And that Lewis is not attempting to make a theological statement, as he was saying, but rather to paint a picture in our mind. So we should probably, mm -hmm. maybe that's, we probably like want to keep that in mind, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important to have some empathy for the fact, and I, I've been, you know, the devil's advocate for most of this time and bringing up maybe some concerns with the book, but. Which is uh, uh, mysteriously important somehow. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, I think it's important to have empathy for the fact that C.S. Lewis, well, well, when it comes to the the whole portrayal of the feminine, uh, mm -hmm. you know, he's not married at this point. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know that his understanding of femininity or of women or of the place of women in the world and in Christianity and everything is super fleshed out at this point. So like, you know, maybe important to have some sympathy and some empathy for that. And then also the fact that this is, especially for what he's trying to do, like the scope of the task, which is to build this mm -hmm. cosmic mythology. Um, he does an incredible job given, you know, how young a writer he is, um, mm -hmm. as opposed to his later and maybe more mature works. Like to compare this to Till We Have Faces, I think would be really interesting, but not, we don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting um, I think that he definitely becomes his view on this on on this issue of of, of sexuality of male and female um, doesn't necessarily change, but it becomes more paradoxical. It becomes more complicated later on, especially if you read uh, um, a grief observed, which is Lewis mourning the death of his wife Joy, mm -hmm. which he calls Joy 
um, my subject and my sovereign. And he has a, a quote where he says, once I praised you for your masculine virtues and you responded by saying if you would like to be praised for your feminine ones. A good riposte, my dear. <laughs> That's adorable. Yeah. So, anyway, do you have do you do you want to do we want to do we want to elaborate more on that or do we uh, is that do you think that's a good note to end on? I think that's a great note to end on. Okay. Well, thank you for listening, everyone, and uh, we'll be concluding this final episode of this series in an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been listening to Unreliable Narrators, a Mars Hill podcast. Unreliable Narrators is an original podcast produced by Stoa alumni. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts can be found. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at unreliablenarratorspodcast.wordpress.com. Check out our Instagram at unreliablenarratorspodcast or email us at unreliablenarratorstoa at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts. This podcast is produced by Raymond Dokopil and Sophie Klomperens, and our theme music is No New Words by Caleb Klomperens. In our next episode, we'll be concluding this three-part series by discussing the epic finale of Lewis's science fiction trilogy, That Hideous Strength. Until next time, friends, if you're ever in need of a harrowing performance of a demon procession, <laughs> you know who to call. I know you can see something inside one part of me that I cannot hide And maybe it's true that nothing is new But I can see so much more in you